All right, everybody, how we doing? We good? Good. Man, whether you're watching online at a watch party in our family gathering or in one of our in-person gatherings at one of our locations, we're so excited that you're here, and we're so excited to continue having this conversation about Welcome to the Wrestle. And this is now week four, talking about the story in Genesis chapter 32, where Jacob wrestles with God. And my whole contention has been, we have to learn how to welcome the wrestle in our life. We have to quit running from the ring, if you will, and learn how to welcome the wrestle. And so just to have fun again, before we jump into the text, I I want to just bring it back up again in our best WWE voice, all right, so we can enjoy each other. I like to laugh at myself. You got to learn how to laugh at yourself. If 2020 hasn't taught you how to laugh at yourself yet, you're doing it wrong, all right? So we're going to say welcome to the wrestle in our best wrestling voice. All right, on the count of three, let's all do it together. If you're watching online in a family gathering, we're going to say welcome to the wrestle. We're going to say it big. We're going to say it loud like we're the announcer for a wrestling ring. All right, here we go. One, two, three. Welcome to the wrestle. That was good. I like that. I like that. Very nicely done. Now, I do that for a couple reasons. One, so that you'll call and respond and actually pay attention as I preach through the message. But two, because when we say it ourselves, We have to learn how to not only say it, but then embrace it. And that's why I want us to say it. One, so we can have a little bit of fun, but two, so that we can actually learn how to start to welcome the wrestle in our life. So if you have a Bible, we're actually going to back up into Genesis from Genesis chapter 32. We're actually going to be in Genesis chapter 25 this week, and we're going to go back into, like I told you at the beginning, and look at the beginning parts of Jacob's life and see why God had to wrestle in, out of him the things that were put into him, how he grew up, and how all of us have this same kind of scenario in our lives. So Genesis chapter 25, and while you're turning there, let's just give it up real quick for Pastor David. He did an incredible job last week preaching yeah, on, on wrestling with our identity. And, and really what he said and shared out of uh, 1 Peter last week is really the goal. That, that is the goal that we're trying to get to to that place where we see ourselves like that, where we see ourselves how God wants or how God sees us, and then the goal of God to actually make us into that, to make us into our new identity in Christ. Because when we get saved, and this is the hard part for so many of us, when we get saved, there is an instantaneous thing that happens. We are saved. We are made perfect in the sight of God. But at the same time, it also kicks off a new process where we are being perfected, where we are being saved, if you will, which I know kind of sounds weird. It's like, well, are we saved or are we being saved? And the answer to that is yes. Again, the best way to think about this is the Bible uses the analogy of being born again. When a child is born physically, life began, but are they mature at that moment? No. In fact, we know it takes about 25 years for them to physically mature. And then after the age of 25, you start to die. So over the hill, it's not 40, it's 25. You're welcome, all right? And so you're actually over the hill after the age of 25. So if you're over the age of 25, you're no longer cool, all right? You peaked at 25, sad to tell you. But that's just the the idea, all right? Let me get back to the message. But the same way, spiritually speaking, when we're born again, We are now saved, but we're not mature. We're not like Jesus. In relationship to God, 
we are as though we are Jesus in the sense that he sees us like that. He sees us as his beloved son, as Pastor David said, but we're not in the state where we're actually mature like Jesus. And so that is why God wrestles us down. That is why God wrestles with us so that we can become mature. And my whole contention for this series has been this. God wants deep transformation in all of us. The devil would, want, would love nothing more. He can't unsave you. He can't you know, thwart the plans of God when it comes to that for your life. But he can convince you that the transformation just needs to be shallow. The devil would want nothing more than for you to just have a shallow transformation, not actually go deep with the Lord. Not actually allow the Lord to work in, wrestle in all the deep things within us that are unhealthy. So that's the whole goal of this series. And we're looking at the story of Jacob to help us all see ourselves in Jacob or to see Jacob in ourselves. All right. That's what we're doing. So if you're new, if you're getting caught up, you can go watch those other messages. But now we're going to go back into Genesis chapter 25 and learn some foundational things as to why Jacob was the way he was, right? So let's pray, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you're doing. And God, I pray as we open up your word today that you would speak to us. Because God, we know, we know, if we were honest, we know there are things in us that need to change. But the hardest problem that we have is not just admitting those things, but admitting also that we're powerless to change them. So God, we want to acknowledge that. That's the beauty of church. The beauty of church is we can recognize there's Jesus and the rest of us. None of us are perfect. None of us are able, but you are. And so would you work in us the work that you want to see in us and do it now as we read and listen to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Genesis 25, verses 19 through 28 is where we're gonna be for our time together. And what this is, again, this is going back this is Jacob's birth story, if you will. All right, so look at verse 19. It says, these are the generations of Isaac. Now, Isaac is Jacob's father, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. So that's Jacob's mother. The daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Potteram. This sounds like a Star Wars flick, all right? The sisters of Laban, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Verse 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife conceived. Verse 22, the children, plural, struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? What a great question. So she went to inquire of the Lord. So again, little background here. Jacob is one of two sons to Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah, so that's his mom and dad. And the generations of Isaac, now obviously Isaac is Abraham's son, and so you're seeing grandpa, father, son. The reason why that's so important is I made a comment to you on the very first week of this series, and I talked about how we would dig into this, and so this is us digging into this that whatever the wrestle that we have within us, whatever the struggle we have within us, is almost always generational. And what I mean by that is this, and this, this whole sermon is about, we're gonna unpack today, is that whatever the struggles we have, we've inherited. 
Because we are not isolated individuals. We are born with genetics, so that is nature. God designs us, wires us, and we're also born into families. That is nurture. So it's both. And every single one of us are a part of families that were born after Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you don't know what happened in Genesis chapter 3, that was when Adam and Eve fell. So every family, including Adam and Eve's family, after they fell, was born into sin. And, and this is why I like to start here, because again, we're church people and we can lie real well, which sounds funky to me. And it's really kind of an indictment on church people that we know how to lie so well. And what I mean by that is this, you're like, I'm not a liar. No, but you just like to be fake. And what I'm saying is when we come to church, again, we put on our representative self. We show up not like we're showing up to a recovery scenario. So in church, you have a lot of people that are like, hi, my name is Jason. I don't have any problems. But in a recovery scenario, whether it's AA or our own biblical recoveries here, you show up into the environment and the only expectation is you are showing up because you are messed up. And what started happening in the church is we learned that, no, if I show up and I let them know I'm messed up, then they're going to judge me, which is ironic because the people that would judge you are also messed up. And so I'm, I'm laying the groundwork here for all of us. I mean, it's just a straw poll. Everybody watching. Who here was born into families after Genesis 3? Everybody. All hands go up. Everybody. All right. Online, watch party, wherever it is. So you know what that means? You were born into a jacked up family. You were born into some kind of generational line. And this is what I want you to see. Because the generational line is not just about descendants, it's also about decisions. You see, your mama and your daddy didn't just pass down to you their genes from a descendant standpoint, they also passed down to you their decisions. They also passed down to you their discernments. They also passed down to you, another D word, their dysfunctions. And so what I'm trying to get you to see, which I'll point out later because the text does so, is that Jacob was who he was because he was a part of a family who they were. He learned what he lived in. He learned what he lived in. All of us do that. All of us. So all of us have some kind of pathology. All of us have some kind of dysfunction. And this is why I made the point of when you get married and you get an eye into another family's dysfunction, it's so weird. Again, this is a lot of your conflicts early on in marriage. Oh, your family's weird. Oh, no, no, no. Now you're attacking my mama. Now you're attacking my daddy. Now you're talking my family. And it's this whole idea of like, well, what was weird to them is just normal to you. And so the idea is simply this. Jacob was born into a generational thing, and all of us are. Now, from the beginning, we see there was a struggle. Now, this isn't my message. It's just a little side note here. A couple things I want to point out in verse 21 and 22. It says, first, that Isaac's wife was barren. So sometimes you can be so godly, following the Lord, trying to do his will, and it still doesn't work out. 
And, and this is one of those things, and I'm not trying to make any value statement about having kids or not having kids or anything like that. I just want to point out that almost always, whatever it is we're wrestling with, people in the Bible have rest, wrestled with them. So Isaac prays, and his wife conceives. Now, sometimes when we pray, the Lord may answer that prayer, and, and you may conceive, and you may have prayed that way. Sometimes you pray for something, and the Lord answers it. But here's the other irony of this. The Lord answers his prayer, but then the very thing he prayed for is now the thing she's struggling with. So on the flip side of this, that's why I was saying I'm not making a value statement about kids or being barren or anything like that, because I know that's a whole other subject matter, and I'm not trying to make light of any of it. But sometimes the things that we are struggling with are the results of things we prayed for years before. And it's important that we remember that because just like having kids, you pray for kids and God gives you kids and then you get teenagers, right? And teenagers, I heard one pastor say this and I've never forgotten. I've said it multiple times here. God gave us teenagers to know what it was like to have someone created in your own image who then denies you. That's what it's like. And so in the struggle of raising kids, as you're going to see in this text, we have to remember, hey, what I'm struggling with now is something I was praying for back then. So Rebecca is now struggling with something that she had prayed about. And, and here's the main thing I want to point out to this. When she was struggling, she prayed. He prayed and she prayed. He prayed for her. Husband's a great thing for us to do. Pray for our wives. And then when she was struggling, the Bible says she went and inquired of the Lord herself. Now, what I love about that, again, this is just kind of a side note to the text. It, it says it in such a way, so she went to inquire of the Lord. What that means is she actually physically made a move. Like she got up from where she was and she went to another place to inquire of the Lord. The reason why I'm pointing that out, because when it comes to a year like 2020, one of the best things we can do is to get up whatever we're struggling in and go to the Lord. To get up. And I don't mean that just spiritually. I mean that also physically. Get up into a different room. Go to a place. Come to church. Go to a people. Go to a small group. Get up and make a move and then beg God to make a move. So she does that. Which I mentioned this earlier in the year. I think on one of our update videos that we did in 2020, uh, when we were sheltering in place, I just started uh, this note in my phone uh, on the note-taking app just called Shelter Scriptures. And, and scriptures that God would speak to me during that sheltering in place time, I would write them down to remember that the Lord spoke to me in the midst of this global pandemic. And one of the ones that he took me to, and I don't even remember how, but it is now one of my favorite texts because it's in the context of a prayer. And I've got it on the screen. It comes out of 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12, and then verse 20, which is just a really cool God thing. But this is Jehoshaphat. He is the king at this time in Israel's history. Again, this is a little side note. And he's praying. Listen to how he prays. Verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 20, he says this, we don't know what to do but our eyes are on you. Listen, church, sometimes that's all you can pray. Sometimes when you're wrestling, when you're struggling, I want, you, I want to encourage you to memorize this verse, 2 Chronicles 20, 12. I now pray it all the time. Lord, 
I pray it back to the Lord. Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Lord, I don't know what to do right here, but my eyes are on you. So Jehoshaphat prays that. Then a worship leader speaks up. You can go read this story later and prophesies and gives a a word that God is going to bless them. And then in response to that, look at verse 20. And this is the one that I just found ironic because it is 2020. Second Chronicles 2020. And yes, I nerd out on things like that. So this is my verse for 2020. Second Chronicles 2020. Here's what Jehoshaphat says in response. Jehoshaphat stood and said, hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Israel, believe in the Lord, your God, and you will be established. Believe. You were here during our We Believe series. We talked about this. Believe in the Lord, your God, and you will be established. Second part here, after a semicolon. Also, I added that, believe his prophets and you will succeed. Again, this factors in, but it's not even the main point of my text, but here's what I want to say to you. When you're wrestling, when you're struggling like Rebecca was in giving birth to Jacob, this should be our mentality. Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to believe you. And I'm going to believe that you're going to establish me. Second thing, here's what I'm pointing out to. And yes, I am aware, which is why I'm pointing it out, that we are in an election year. Be careful which prophets you listen to. See, Jehoshaphat said, believe his prophets. Whose? His. Believe his prophets. You want, you want to know one of the greatest indictments, I think, right now, 2020 in the church, is a lot of Christians aren't listening to his prophets. They're listening to their favorite political party's prophets. And I'm an equal opportunity offender. I don't really care what party you're a part of. We are being shaped, informed into ideological positions more so than we are into theological depths. And so Jehoshaphat says here, and what I'm saying to you is you better listen to his prophets. You want a side note, Jeremiah 23, just write it down and read it later. Jeremiah was a prophet. And in chapter 23, God tells Jeremiah and the people, hey, quit listening to the wrong prophets. Quit listening to the wrong prophets. I didn't send them. So what they're saying to you is their own dreams and visions. That it's not from me. So in the midst of a global pandemic, you want to know the best thing you and I can do? Is crowd out every other voice but the Lord's. Crowd out every other voice. And know that you know. That you're banking your life. On the Lord establishing you. Not somebody else. Y'all ready for the sermon now? All right, let's get back into Genesis 25, verse 23. And the Lord said to her, so the Lord spoke back, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, I talked about the two-ness. Remember the duplicity in Jacob's life? The doubleness? Two wives, he split them up into two camps. He renames the place he was hanging out, two camps. He stays the night in two camps. Well, where does Jacob get that from? He got it. I'm not saying this is Rebecca's fault, but I'm saying it started from day one with Jacob. In, in the womb, 
homeboy was wrestling with his brother. Now, I'm not a woman, number one, and so therefore I've never had twins. So I don't know what this is like, but I, I can imagine, right? And, but what's interesting here is this goes beyond just the normal wrestle because there's a theological point that God is making here. And what is that point? He says, two peoples from within you shall be divided. See, I told you that divided people have a double-mindedness. And so they create division because there is division within them. So a duplicity and division, you know, comes from die means to vision. So division and duplicity comes from two different visions. Now, Rebecca was experiencing this with two different people, but it was foreshadowing what Jacob would experience within himself. He would experience two different visions, and what were they? He was having the same wrestle that you and I have, and what is it? Romans 1, who is going to win the battle for authority in your life? That's the wrestle. Who's going to win the battle of authority in your life? See, here's what's crazy. Jacob comes out, as you're going to see in a second, fighting with his brother. Why was Jacob coming out fighting with his brother? Because he was born with a fight in him and not a good kind of fight. Let me say it to you like this. You want to know why so many times people that are fighters fight everybody else? Because they are trying to quiet the fight within their own heart. This is the person, remember this person from middle school? And if you don't remember it, it may have been you. But remember the person from middle school that how they elevated themselves was they put everybody else down? Because they thought that if somebody was ahead of them, if somebody beat them, if somebody was better than them, if they lost them somehow, that they were less than. So they would fight everybody else. Why? Why are they fighting everybody else? You want to know why? Because there's a fight in within them. So it's ironic to me that the answer that the Lord gives to Rebecca is, listen, you got two nations. You got two peoples fighting within you. That is foreshadowing because that is the fight that all of us have. We have two nations within us. We have two peoples within us. Is this not what Romans 6 and 7 says? I don't do the things that I want to do. And I do the things that I, I don't want to do. What's wrong with me? You ever felt like that? You know what's wrong with you? You got two nations. You got two kings, two kingdoms, two powers, two peoples fighting within you. And if you and I don't do the hard work of digging into why that is, then we'll keep thinking that the fight is out there and not in here. Now, go on, look at verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, they were twins, shocker, in her womb. The first came out red, all of his body like a hairy cloak. Ooh. So they called his name Esau. Esau means hairy. So she gave birth to, you know, a bear, basically. And I have friends that some of them leave in our church that are just hairy individuals. I'm not that one. It's not a good or a bad thing. It's just pointing out like... Homeboy came out with hair all over. 26. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's hill. So his name was called Jacob. 
Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. That's part of the problem right there. Daddy was just old. <laughs> this is a joke. Thank you for laughing. I mean, Abraham was 100. So practically speaking, 60 was young. Now, I've mentioned this before, but when Jacob comes out, he's grabbing his brother's heel. So Jacob means heel grabber. But in Hebrew, the phrase heel grabber, we do this in English as well, is a euphemism or an idiom that means more than just heel grabber. It means deceiver. It means a liar, duplicitous one. And here's this little crazy thing that I thought. You want to know where deceit comes from? John chapter 8 tells us deceit comes from the devil. Jesus said that the devil is a liar. That's his native language. He's been lying from the beginning. You know what's very interesting to me? In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, when Adam and Eve sin and God curses and he says to the woman, he says, you will give birth and the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent will grab his Heal, but the seed of the woman will crush his head. Where does the Hebrew euphemism or idiom come from heel grabber? It comes from the devil himself. The devil's a heel grabber. He's a deceiver. What does that mean? The devil can't create anything. All he can do is pervert it. The devil does not have the power to create. Only God does. So all the devil can do is take what the Lord created and grab it and twist it. And that's who Jacob was. He was a deceiver. He was a devil. He was a heel grabber. Now, before we all be like, Jacob's a bad dude. Well, let's understand a little bit why Jacob was that way. Look at the next couple of verses. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. He was a man. He was a dude. Literally, the phrase here is a man who knew how to hunt. He was a man's man, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. What a description. Look at verse 28. Here's the whole point of the message. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, I know we're not counselors and psychologists here, but can you just take a look at this verse and almost instantly understand why Jacob had problems? His daddy loved his brother and his mama loved him. Parents, you want to know the best way to ruin your kids? Each of you love one of the different kids differently. I'm not saying don't make accounts for their differences. What I'm saying is this, pick favorites. You pick favorites, you're going to start creating unnecessarily and oftentimes unknowingly dysfunctional patterns within your kids. You want to know why Jacob was such a deceiver? Because... He never got his father's affirmation. His father affirmed his brother. 
And why did his father affirm his brother? This is what's interesting to me. (laughs) Because he loved to eat of his game. You know what that means? Isaac was old. He didn't want to hunt anymore. Esau was a good hunter. He was, I guess he was so hairy, he could just blend in with the animals, right? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. You know, oh, I thought you were a bear, you know, and then they're dead. So what am I getting at here? Isaac loved his son's performance. Again, you want to know one of the most destructive relationships we can have with our kid? Base our love on their performance for us. So Esau learned that if he performed well, daddy loved him. Jacob learned it doesn't matter how I perform with dad because I'm not Esau. So Jacob learns a pathology that is affirmed from his mother. Now, we might say Jacob is a mama's boy, and we don't say that with any kind of like, oh, that's a good thing, which that always offends me because I'm the youngest of three, and I spent a lot of more time with my mother than I did my father growing up. So I was unashamedly a mama's boy. But here's what can happen. The wrong things can get affirmed in us. So there's two pathologies. See, Isaac was affirming Esau's performance, where Rebecca was affirming, how do I say this? Jacob's, I want to say his identity, but that sounds too good. She She was so not affirming his performance, she was affirming his person. And what do I mean by that? Well, the Bible tells us Esau was skillful. He was a hunter. He was a man of the field. Who was Jacob? He was a quiet man who liked to hang out in tents. Which one do you want to be friends with? And this is what becomes sometimes in our cultures toxic because we define men in certain performance ways. And men, we do this all the time. That's why we're always trying to measure up when we're around other men. But if we're not careful, we'll create a whole nother generation of men who have no shot at performance in that way, that then their affirmation comes from not their performance, but from their person. But what happens in that, that their person is not godly either. And we even come up with words. So let's just, let me give you some words for this, some common nomenclature. Esau is a type A dude. He's a, he's a type A dude. Jacob is a type B dude. You, you might not even known there was a type B, did you? Because we just, which, let me ask you this. Which one in our culture do we affirm? Type A's. Because type A's are hard charging, business, entrepreneurial, get stuff done, organized, going to take the mountain kind of dudes. Type B's are more relaxed, chilled. We'll get there when we get there. And that's what's interesting about this word quiet. I told you before that Hebrew words mean a lot of things. So this word can mean perfect. That's what's funny. So, so Rebecca's like, oh, my little boy is perfect. He's perfect. But it also can mean something more. And that's what's interesting. It also can mean calm, relaxed attitude or lifestyle. So you got a mountain climber and a surfer kind of guy. 
In fact, I'm going to give you a picture. I was looking it up today, and I got it here on the screen for those of you watching online or in person. Here's the best way I can describe type A and type B. Type A wants to get to the top of the mountain because it's there, and they need to climb it. Type B is like, I'm just going to sit at the bottom of the mountain because it's there. That's type A and type B. Now, all of us are some kind of mix between the two, or you might be more one than the other, but do you know where the whole type A and type B classification came from? I didn't either. It came from two cardiologists that were studying why men died from heart failures. And what they decided, what their conclusion was, is that men who were more hard-charging, stressed, taking the mountain kind of dudes died earlier than type B types. So they were studying, here's what's crazy. The physical effects of their hearts as it related to their personality types. Let me say it to you like this. The very thing that might be killing you might be the very thing that was affirmed in you when you were a kid. So parents, you better be careful what you affirm in your kids. Because see, when they're four, you might affirm something that was funny. But when they're 40, it ain't funny no more. But do you understand how psychologically confusing that is to a kid who was four who got praised for something that was funny but was dysfunctional? And so they grow up into adulthood and the world doesn't receive them as funny. The world receives them as dysfunctional. And they have an identity crisis because they got affirmation for those very same actions when they were younger and now they're not. So you want to understand why Jacob partly was the way that he was? Because he was simply living out what was affirmed in him. He was a type B kind of dude. He wasn't the hard charger. He was the laid back one. He, this is what Jacob thought. I'm going to let you take the mountain and then I'm going to figure out how to take credit for it. I'm going to sit back and let you do all the hard work. And then I'm going to take the claim for it. We'll get into this in the next few weeks. You'll see how he does it. But here's my whole message for this week. In fact, I got two points for you. Let me give you the first one. We are drinking from wells that were dug before. We are drinking from wells that were dug before. Now, what in the world do I mean by wells? And why am I mentioning wells? As I was studying this and thinking about it last week, something hit me. And partly it hit me because in Genesis chapter 26, you can go read this later, Isaac goes back and redigs his father's wells. And he renames them the things that his father named them. And so the whole concept of wells started intriguing, was intriguing to me. And I'll bring it into the New Testament in just a minute. And I got this word picture, and this is why I want to give it to you. You know, my parents dug a well, not literally, but metaphorically, and they dug a well for our family. And, I, and, and that well symbolizes this is how we do things. This is how Gertis is. This is the generational things. And so I just grew up drinking from it, not ever wondering whether or not that water was poisoning me. And you want to know why? Because my father and my mother 
simply drank from the wells that their parents dug for them. And it wasn't until I went through my 20s and into my early 30s that I started having a lot more grace for my parents because I understood that the wells that they had dug for me, even though they were dysfunctional, <laughs> they had far worse wells dug for them. And so I shifted from this place of judgment to compassion and understanding like, oh, that's why we did the things that we did that were dysfunctional because we, you were just drinking out of the wells that they dug for you. And here's why I'm saying this. Every single one of us drink in the dysfunction from the wells that our families dug. Now, let me give you the last point. And this is thinking future. Here's what's crazy. Our kids will drink from wells that we're digging now. Our kids will drink from wells that we're digging now. You ever heard of the concept of generational sin? This is what I'm trying to explain to you. It's natural to drink from what was dug from you, dug for you. But when God, the Holy Spirit gets a hold of your life, he leads you to dig a new well and to have a different kind of water to drink from. What do I mean by that real quick? We'll talk more about this. John chapter four. You don't have to turn that. I don't have it on the screen. You can go read it later. But Jesus, he's getting some press, some fake news, if you will. People are buzz is going around about how he's baptizing everybody, although he wasn't baptizing. And now he's got more followers than John the Baptist. And so Jesus says, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm heading out. And in John chapter four, the Bible says Jesus had to go. He had to to Samaria. Now, if you don't know geographically, Samaria was a place that Jewish people didn't like. It was north of Jerusalem. It's where the half-breeds were. But Jesus had to go there. And there's this story in the beginning part of John chapter 4 where his disciples go in to get him some, some food and drink, and then Jesus shows up and talks to a woman at a well. <laughs> Here's the part that blew my mind. You want to know what well it was she was at? Jacob's well. Come on, somebody. I just got chills. She was at Jacob's well. This same Jacob. Drinking from it. And Jesus speaks to her and has a conversation. He's like, hey, would you draw me out some water? She's like, this is Jacob's well. I don't know if you know this, but this sucker is deep. And you got nothing to draw it from. And then Jesus turns it on her and he says, well, if you actually knew who the one that was talking to you, you would ask me for a drink. And she's like, hold up, who are you? And then he starts talking to her about living water. And then Jesus in the like, uh, Jesus is like, I would, I, you know, I always like to say he's a ninja because that's the, but like Jesus is just masterful in this moment. What does he do? He goes, hey, go call your husband. And she goes, I ain't got a husband. He's like, you're right, you don't. In fact, you've had five of them. And the one you're with now, he ain't even your husband. Why in the world did Jesus point that out at the well? You want to know why I think? Jesus was challenging the woman. You've been drinking from the wrong place. 
You've been drinking from the approval of men and it will never give you life. But I got water for you that'll spring up inside of you into eternal life. And then here's what's crazy. She leaves and goes into Samaria and this is what she goes, hey, come meet the dude who told me everything I ever did wrong. Have you ever had somebody respond to the gospel like that? Like, hey, 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 everybody, come meet this dude. He just told me how we're all sinners. Like he just called out all my sins. Come talk to him. Why did she do that? It wasn't because, Christians, if we could get this, it wasn't because Jesus pointed out her sins judgmentally. It's because Jesus was showing her that her sins were killing her. See, sin is like salt water. The more you drink it, the faster you die. And if you're stranding in the ocean, the worst thing that you can do is get instant relief from salt water. Oh, it will instantly relieve your mouth, but then the salt will rob your body of all the water. See, Jesus comes to a woman at Jacob's well who had been drinking salt water. And he leads her to life in such a way that she is now excited to talk about how dysfunctional she used to be. What if our churches were like that? What if our churches met the kind of Jesus that created excitement in us to tell other people about how dysfunctional we used to be? Let me me tell you what this dude did for me. I'm not the same woman who slept with those five dudes. I'm not the same man who did that thing that was affirmed in me by the wells that my parents dug. This dude dug a new well in my heart. And here's what's crazy. Jesus had to go there, the Bible says. Go read it. John 4, verse 4, I think. He had to go. No one made him. Why? Because that was the path of his purpose. He knew there was going to be a woman who was at a well, (laughs) check this, that was drinking out of a well from a guy that he had wrestled before. See, it was Jesus who wrestled Jacob in Genesis 32. And now he's meeting a woman that he wants to wrestle with. Samaria. Samaria. Another way to think about it is this. Some area. Every single one of us have some area in our life that Jesus has to go to. He has to. And here's what's crazy. He won't ask you for permission if he has the right to go there. See, so many times we have put up these no trespassing signs because everybody else in our life, when they went there, they hurt us. So we put up all these no trespassing signs because we're so afraid of God going there. But here's what I want you to see there. Let him go there because he wants to go there to heal you. He wants to go to some area in your life and challenge what you've been drinking out of because he loves you too much to let you keep drinking out of wells that were dug for you by dysfunctional people. And if that doesn't hit you enough with grace, 
especially of those of us who are parents. It's worth doing the hard work of letting Jesus dig up the dysfunctions so that your kids won't drink from it like you did. You want to know my greatest fear in life? I'm going to cry to sing it, but my greatest fear in life is my kids drinking out of my dysfunction. I want my kids to drink out of the living water of Jesus' function, Jesus' life, their heavenly Father. But they'll never do that if they don't believe the Lord God and that he will establish them. He will establish them. How will they believe that if they've seen him establish you? That's why we have to say welcome to the wrestle, man. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we don't need self-help books. We don't even need necessarily modern psychology, even though it's not all bad. We just need you and your word. Because every person who theorizes about the dysfunctions of human beings are just doing that. They're theorizing. But you're the one person who knows the human heart because you made it. And like Pastor David said, you get to name it. Well, the reason why you get to name it is because you know it. But God, it is so hard for us to let you traverse into those places that we have told other people they can't trespass because we're so afraid of being hurt again. But God, thank you that you're relentless and that you have a mentality that says, I got to go there. I have to because I don't want you drinking from it anymore. And so God, I pray right now for anybody that's watching or listening that's been drinking from the, the dysfunctional wells that were dug. I pray that they would, for the first time maybe, take responsibility. Quit blaming their parents. Quit blaming their grandparents. Quit blaming the circumstances. Maybe they, they can't choose their temptation, but they can choose their response to it. And what we have to own up to is, yeah, they dug it, but I drank from it. I drank from it, and it's killing me. But God, I pray that you would introduce them to the kind of Jesus that is the biblical Jesus, that isn't going to judge them for those sins because he took the judgment himself, but he wants to free them from those sins in such a way where they become excited about who they are now, and they can tell others about their dysfunctional self that you freed them from. So again, nobody looking around or talking or you're watching online or in a family gathering. Let me just ask you, are you really drinking from the living water that Jesus has for you? And, and by that, what I mean is, has there ever come a point in time in your life where Jesus has confronted you and you honestly responded and said, you're right. See, all confession is, is agreement. I'm agreeing. I'm a sinner. Would you save me?
And that's the gift that Jesus offers. So if that's you, you can do that right now. You can pray with me. You can do it. You don't have to do it out loud, but you can pray with me. It goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me. That you sent your son, Jesus, to Samaria. To some area to seek me out. To dig a new well. To give me life. To save me. So I confess, I agree, I'm a sinner. And I receive the gift that Jesus bought to save me from my sins. I confess, would you forgive me? As always, nobody looking around or talking, if you're in one of our in-person environments, if you just pray that with me very simply, would you just lift your hand so we can see that? Thank you. Then if you're watching it online, you'll have an opportunity or even in person to text us in just a moment. Let us know. Then again, the rest of us. Maybe you have trusted Christ, you're saved, but if you were honest with me, and here's what I'm trying to get you to do, be honest with me. Ultimately, be honest with, with thee, with the Lord. And just say, Lord, I, I'm, I'm tired of drinking from those wells that were dug for, for me. I'm tired of drinking from that dysfunction. I'm, trying to, I'm tired of trying to find my affirmation in my performance. I'm tired of trying to find my affirmation in my person, in myself, in my ability to manipulate. I want it in you. Free me from that. And then by grace, help me to dig new deep wells that my kids and my disciples after me will drink from. They'll drink from wholeness and health. Father, would you do this? Thank you for loving us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.